All right, and for the rest of us, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Uh, So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning, really focusing on the last section there, uh, verses 7 through 10, and with the significance of that uh, for us this morning. And I want to start just by saying, um, over the last several months, as as I have... um, I guess just been living life, and it's been a crazy uh, season for for me. I have re-encountered the importance, uh, the value of just simply walking. You see, this idea of walking, I, I think it's something that, in a in a sense, it's it's unnatural today. And to illustrate, let me just ask you a question: How long did it take you to get here this morning? If you were to answer that question of how long does it take me to get to the church facility, not just this morning, but any other morning, how long does it take you? You can just shout it out. It doesn't matter. Eight minutes. All right, I heard eight minutes. Five minutes. It used to take me two minutes. Um, Whether you answer two minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever the case is, I can guarantee you that all of us, as we think about that question, we're not thinking about uh, how long it takes us to walk to the church, right? So I used to live just five blocks away, and even when that question was asked of me, if someone asked, how far away from the church do you live, I would say two minutes. I wouldn't say 15, even though I could get here by walking, even when I would walk. We have a tendency to just think of life through the lens of the automobile. We can go far faster, far further than we ever could without it, right? And yet, I think that that has brought about this change in how we look at all of life that we have a tendency to see life through this lens, and we can live life at a much more frenetic pace because of how fast we can drive to get places. We're not forced to walk to get different places. Walking changes that. Walking forces you to slow down. It forces you to go at a different pace. And I have found that for me, some of the most prayerful moments have been while I've been walking. Some of the best moments of rest have been while I have been walking. Some of the best moments for reflection have come while I have been walking. Because when I'm walking, I'm forced to slow down to a pace of about three miles an hour. And significantly, in the Bible, one of the most common terms that is used to describe how we live our lives Specifically, how we live a life that honors God, but but more generally, just how we live life, the trajectory of our life in general, oftentimes is used this word walk. We walk in a certain way. Just think of Jesus' invitation to his disciples thousands of years ago. As he's walking through Galilee, he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So for the disciples... This statement was a literal one, that they actually followed Jesus. Jesus was walking throughout Galilee. He was walking throughout Judea. He was walking beyond that. And the disciples followed him by walking behind him. And as they were walking with Jesus, they learned from Jesus. They observed how Jesus lived his own life. They got to know Jesus. I think the same thing is true for us today. Even though we may not literally follow Jesus around from place to place, following Jesus means that we get to know him, that we observe how we should live, and we learn from him. This idea of following Jesus is one that goes at the pace 
of about three miles an hour, walking out our faith. This is one of the reasons why the Bible, when it talks about the importance of following Jesus, will say that one of the ways that we respond to the gospel with a life that honors Jesus is by simply just walking in a certain way. And that's the case in this morning's passage. Last week, we looked at this passage from Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And in this passage, Paul is describing one of the reasons why God saves people. He says that while he saves people for their sake, because they are in desperate need of being saved, while he saves them for his own sake, he saves people to make them his own possession, he also saves people so that they would be zealous for good works. And remember how we defined good works last week. We said that good works are obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. One of the reasons why God saves us is that we would be known for this all-consuming passion to be obedient to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. We're not zealous for good works because they impress God or they earn us God's love or even out of sense of this idea of paying God back for what he has done for us. We are zealous for good works because good works are a form of worship. While we gather together and we worship Jesus here through song, through hearing his word, we also live a life of worship and good works as God scatters us to our homes, to our businesses, to all of the interactions that we have with other people outside of these walls as, as God has intentionally planted us in certain places throughout the week. So to be zealous for good works means to be zealous for worship, to worship Jesus through our actions, through our obedience to him. This morning, we're going to look at a passage that is very similar to what we looked at last week. If you have a Bible, I mentioned Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here, we see the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, we also see the implications of that or how our lives are changed because of the gospel. As we work our way through this text, we're going to see it just breaks apart, verses 1 through 10, break apart into life before Jesus, new life because of Jesus, and finally what a life with Jesus looks like. Would you pray with me as we approach God's word? Father, as, as we approach your word, we ask that you would enable us to not only hear your word, but you would also enable us to respond to it in the right way. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work in our lives. We ask that you would help us to be increasingly obedient to the gospel for Jesus' sake. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Ephesians 2 starts with this picture of life before Jesus. This is an essential part of the gospel. It's a sobering part of the gospel. To appreciate who we are in Christ now, we have to understand more fully who we once were. And that's what Paul describes in verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So how does Paul describe life before Jesus? 
Well, Paul's given us this report, and it's a pretty tough pill for us to swallow. He says that every person who is apart from Jesus is dead in their sin. Notice that verse 1 doesn't say that we are trapped in sin, unable to free ourselves, which is true. It doesn't just say that we are slaves to sin, as Paul says elsewhere. Paul uses extremely strong language, probably the, the strongest language possible, to describe the direness of our situation. He says that our problem isn't that we are trapped. It isn't that we are slaves to sin. It is that we are dead in our sins. That if we are a slave to sin, then we are dead. Just like the physical dead, we can't do anything to, to alleviate, to, to solve the problem that is facing us. In Ephesians 2, Paul is telling us that there's basically two types of people that are in the world. You're either with Jesus or you're with the world. You're either controlled by Jesus or you're controlled by the world. You're either united with Jesus or you are united with the world. That there's no middle ground. There's no third option. That's the heart of Ephesians 2. If you're with Jesus, you're alive with him. That's verse 4. But if you're not, if you're with sin, then you are dead. That's verses 1, 2, and 3. Ephesians chapter 2 destroys any illusion that sin is insignificant in God's eyes. Sin is the enemy, and death is the result. Paul describes three ways that sin exerts its power, its enslaving and murderous power over us. He says the influence of the world, verse 2. He says the influence of the devil, verse 2 again. And then finally, he mentions our own sinful nature in verse 3. First, Paul reminds us that the world is hostile to God. Last week, we saw this contrast between the present age and the eternal kingdom that Jesus brings. The same attitude, it rears its ugly head in the garden. When Adam and Eve says, "Just who does God think that he is telling us what we can and can't do? We see that in our own hearts. In the breath that we breathe each and every day. It's this attitude that expresses itself in open cavalier hostility toward God. It's the attitude that expresses itself in this stubborn refusal to, to let go of being in charge of our lives, refusing to submit to God and to his word. It's this attitude that silently rolls its eyes at the very notion that I might be evil enough to need someone to save me, to bring me back from the dead. But Paul says if we are outside of Jesus, then we're controlled by the world and all of its hostility toward God. Second, Paul reminds us that the world is under the control of the enemy. So not just the world exerting its influence on us, but also the enemy exerting his influence upon us. Paul makes no apology for reminding the church that there's this spiritual battle that is going on. The spiritual war is raging that we cannot see. We have to understand that the world stands as an enemy to God because the world is under the sway of the evil one. Of course, Paul doesn't say, therefore, that every single time that we disobey God, every single time we do something that is against God's word, we can just say, well, the devil made me do it. Paul tells us that one of the reasons why we are dead, one of the reasons why we are hostile toward God is just because we plain don't like him. It's not just the world, it's not just the evil one, it's also our own hearts. This is the third reason or, or way that we are united with sin. It's not just the world, it's not just Satan, but it's our own evil hearts. Verse 3 describes our hearts before Jesus as those hearts that are ruled by various passions and desires. 
What are these passions and desires that, that rule when, when Jesus doesn't rule our hearts? Well, Paul gives us the answer a little bit later. As you're reading through the book of Ephesians, notice in verse 2 of chapter 2, he refers to this type of heart as the son and the daughter of disobedience. You're apart from Christ. You're a son of disobedience. You're a, a daughter of disobedience. What exactly does that mean? Well, then you get a couple chapters later, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes what it means to be a son of disobedience, a daughter of disobedience. He says this in, in chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, or covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So here's what Paul seems to be suggesting in Ephesians chapter 2. He seems to be saying that you are either ruled by Jesus or by sex, by Jesus, or by your depraved thinking, by Jesus, or your greed and your covetousness, by Jesus, or your crude speech. And I think in large part, if we're being honest with ourselves, we can look back at our lives before Jesus and say, you know what, this is, this is largely true in my life. That our hearts are indeed ruled by these types of desires and these types of passions. Wanting what wasn't ours. These impure thoughts of foul mouth. I can look at my own life before Jesus can see all of these things are true of me. And this is the life before Jesus. No wonder the Bible says that we are dead in our sins. We can't get away from the truth of Paul's words here. He says that before Jesus, we are dead. And we need someone to bring us back to life. That's what Paul says in the next section he doesn't just describe life before Jesus. He moves to the most beautiful two words in the entire English language, but God. But God. I was dead, but God gave me new life. I was a son of disobedience, but God made me his child. I was destined for wrath. But God intervened. The first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 describe this life that isn't really life at all before Jesus. And then verses 4 through 7 describe that we have, say that we have this new life. And this new life is all because of Jesus. Take a look at verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why is it that Jesus intervenes, that God intervenes into human history Verse 4 gives us the answer. Verse 4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which He has loved us. So the gospel is motivated out of God's incredible mercy, His love for the spiritually dead, for all of humanity. What is it that the spiritually dead most need? It's new life, right? And that's exactly what God offers in the gospel, in these two words, but God. Notice verses 5 and 6. Even when, you were dead in, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here we see that when we place our trust in Jesus, we exchange this life of union, being united with sin and death, verses 1 through 3, for a life that is united with Jesus, verses 4, 5, and 6. And while our union with sin leads to death, union with Jesus leads to new life. That we are a new people. To borrow the language of, of verse 10, that we are literally recreated by God. That we are brought back to life. That we are given a new lease on life. And here's the astounding thing. Paul doesn't just say that we are now with Jesus. Not just that we are given new life. Notice what he says in verse 6. Verse 6 says this, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that one of the unfathomable mysteries of the gospel is that God not only raises us to new life, but now he places us in the place of victory with Jesus in the heavenly places. That the world no longer has a claim on us anymore. That the devil who accuses us stands below our exalted feet because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That the devil is no longer able to condemn us because of what Jesus has done for us. That we are a new people who live because of our new union with Jesus. And what's more, we now live for a new glory. As Paul says in, verse, or in chapter 5, the sons of disobedience, they're idolaters. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter what you worship. It doesn't matter if it's money, sex, self, power, pleasure, whatever it is, because all of them at the end of the day have something in common, and it's, it's not God. It's not the king of the universe. In contrast, Paul shows us what our new life is for in verse 7. Notice what he says. This is so that, I love that language, so that. This is one of the reasons, the purpose, why Jesus comes in the gospel. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Last week we saw some of the reasons why God comes and saves people. And here's another reason. Your salvation is proof that God is kind. It is proof that God is kind. So consider this. For all of eternity, according to verse 7, 
for all of eternity, your resurrection, the fact that you are now a part of God's family is a billboard declaring God's immeasurable grace, his unsearchable glory, his unending kindness toward you. In the new creation, when you see Jordan, when you see me, it will be a reminder of God's unending kindness and patience of how long he was willing to wait for Jordan to turn to him. And when you see me in the new creation, when you see me in glory, it will be abundantly clear that the only reason that I am there is because God is kind. That's what verse 7 tells us. It's that so that in the coming ages, we will see the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And the same thing is true for you as well. If I see you in the new creation, when I see you arrayed in all glory and splendor, it will be a reminder to me of God's immeasurable kindness, his immeasurable goodness, his love for humanity, that God is kind. The fact that heaven is not empty, the fact that the new creation will be filled with multitudes is a reminder that every single person that you encounter is a testimony that God is kind, that we have been given new life because of Jesus. And that life forever will be a testament to how good God is. And just like last week, last week we saw this transition from what Jesus does for us in the gospel to the implications of what new life looks like in him. We see that exact same transition here. Now, Paul describes life before Jesus. He describes new life because of Jesus. And then he says, this is what life will look like if you are with Jesus. Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice how Paul describes this life with Jesus, this new life that we have because of Jesus. In verses 8 and 9, first he, he emphasizes yet again that a life with Jesus is rooted in grace. Life with Jesus is rooted in grace. Why does he stress this again? In part, it's because we are so prone to forget it. That our hearts are are just naturally prone to forgetting the grace of the gospel. That we need constant reminders that it is grace that has saved us. That it is not our own works that merit this new life with Jesus. They aren't even what keeps us in this new life with Jesus. A new life with Jesus is rooted in grace. Second, a life with Jesus is a recreated life. It's a recreated life. Look at the, again at the ver- beginning of verse 10. For we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus. So God is not just the creator of all. He is also the recreator of all who are in Jesus. 
that just as, as God forms every single person in their mother's womb, those who are found in Jesus are his worksmanship because of the gospel. What is the significance of being recreated in Jesus? I, I think this is a helpful way of, of describing this clear break between the old way and the new way, the old life and the new life, our old union and our, our new union. This, this way that Paul describes in, in Romans chapter 6, he says this, By no means how can we who have died to sin still live in it? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So what Paul is saying when he says that we have been recreated, that we are the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus, he's saying that we have died to the old way of life, the old way of doing things, and now we live no longer for ourselves, but for Jesus. That we have been recreated in Jesus and our allegiance has now switched from one kingdom to the other, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. Colossians puts it this way, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. When Jesus saves us, he recreates us for a life with him. It's this life that reflects the eternal kingdom. That's kind of what Paul says next in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Well, for good works. Remember our definition of good works. Obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Last week, we saw that one of the reasons why God saves people is so that they would be zealous for good works, for this obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. And in the gospel presentation of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says the exact same thing. He says that you have been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. That this life with Jesus is a life for good works. If you want to live a life with a purpose, the life that God intends for you as his redeemed son or daughter, then it means to live a life of good works. It means to start by recognizing the grace of the gospel to recognize that we have been recreated in Christ and to live a life of good works. What exactly are those good works? That's what Paul focuses on at the end of verse 10. He uses this word walk. Remember as we began that this is a common word in the Bible to refer to a way of life. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Here's the reality. A life with Jesus is, is simply just a life of walking with Jesus. That we walk with Jesus, just like the disciples in the first century, those who literally walked with Jesus. That's what a life looks like today as well. The Christian life is a life of walking with Jesus. I mentioned this idea of walking as a common one in the Bible to refer to how we are to live our lives. 
We don't literally follow Jesus around like people did thousands of years ago, but we still live a life of walking with Jesus just as Jesus walked. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul describes what it looks like for us to walk with Jesus. He says, if, well, you know, if you want to be someone who is recreated for good works and understand how you are to actually live out these good works, the Bible first says that we walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. We walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. A couple chapters later in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, he's switching. One of the most powerful things about Ephesians, verses, chapters 1 through 3 are all about the gospel. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 start, they hinge on this word, therefore. The application of the gospel. Paul is describing his own application of how he, as a prisoner of the Lord, is encouraging people. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That to walk with Jesus is to walk, to live life worthy of the calling. We've already seen that our calling is to live a life of good works. One of the reasons that we are recreated in Jesus. So if you want to walk worthy of your calling, it means that you live a life of obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul describes another reason or another way that we walk in our life with Jesus. He says, not only do recreated people walk worthy of our calling, they also walk in a manner that is pleasing to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Here again, we see one of the reasons why good works aren't just obedience to Jesus it's also important the motive or the reason why we do them. We do them for Jesus. I think I've shared this before, that one of the prayer requests that my kids and I have, that I pray with my kids every, every night when we pray, is that we would live a life that brings a smile to the face of Jesus. And that's really what it means to live a life that is pleasing to Jesus. That we would bring a smile to the face of God. How do we do that? Isn't it just to live out our calling? To walk with Jesus. To live a life of obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. There's another area. It's hinted at in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, it's, it's clearer in Colossians. And so I want us to just look at it from Colossians. This, what does it mean to, to walk with Jesus? Well, walking with Jesus means just walking wisely toward outsiders towards those who are outside the church. Colossians chapter 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul says that if you're going to walk with Jesus, that means that you should be concerned with the mission of Jesus. That if we are going to follow Jesus, then that probably means that we are going to follow Jesus into relationships with people who are outside of the church. Paul actually goes a little bit further in Colossians chapter 4, right after this, in Colossians 4 verse 5, he says, walk 
wisely toward outsiders. And then verse 6, he kind of explains what exactly this looks like. He says, walking wisely with outsiders means to have gracious speech. To be known for your gracious speech. A life of walking with Jesus means that we are doing everything for Jesus, for the glory of God. Our obedience isn't a way to earn his favor. It's simply just an act of worship. And we do it with those who are inside the church. We do it with those who are outside of the church. Our, our good works will not win people to Jesus. But as we saw last week, Titus chapter 2, verse 10, beautiful works adorn a beautiful gospel. And the life that Jesus has saved for you is one of walking with him, of being on mission with him. That's, that's really just how I want us to end this morning. With this charge, this purpose statement from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If we're people that aren't saved by our good works, but recreated for good works, is simply this, that you have been recreated by God to walk worthy of the name of Jesus. That if you are found in Jesus, then you have been recreated. And you've been recreated for one of the reasons is to bring glory to God with how you walk. We have been recreated. We have been given new life because of Jesus. And that life is a life that is rooted in grace. It is a life of good works. That we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We walk in a way to please the Lord Jesus. We walk wisely among outsiders. Let's be a people who don't just worship with our words, but also worship with our works. Be a people who have been recreated for good works. For obedience to Jesus, for Jesus, by the power of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we need your help. Help us to first and foremost cling to the gospel, the free grace that is offered. Forgive us when we begin to substitute the things we do for you in place of the free gift of grace. Help us to see obedience to you not as a, a way to earn your favor, not as a way to earn salvation, but simply as an act of worship. One of the reasons why you have recreated us, one of the reasons why you have saved us, that we would be a people of worship. God, help us to be a people of worship as we look forward, and just as, as your word says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, looking forward to the fact that we are a billboard of your kindness for all of eternity, that we would live for your glory, not just for all of eternity, but also that we would live for your glory here and now. Help us, God, to live faithfully to the calling you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.